0: You're listening to another New Hope Chapel Podcast. Podcast. Hey, this is Justin Hibbard, pastor of New Hope Chapel. Thanks so much for listening. Today you'll be hearing from Dr. Bill Smith, a member of our teaching team, as he continues our series on Hosea called Redeeming Love.
1: So as I uh, always want to do before we move forward into this talk, I do have my standard disclaimer. Today, the theme of this sermon involves metaphors of an adult nature, which, given this is Family Sunday, will be treated with discretion. In addition, if by any chance you should see yourself in any part of this story, I cannot be held liable. (laughs) So why are we studying Hosea besides the fact that Justin decided we're going to study Hosea? (laughs) In fact, uh, when I first became a Christian, um, I wondered why we'd even study the Old Testament at all. And uh, when I was at Nellis Air Force Base, we had a chaplain there named Andy Gwynn. And whenever it was his Sunday to preach, <clears throat> he would always preach from the New Testament. And after several months of this, I began to, to tease him a little bit, and which he pointed out, well, in seminary, his major was the Old Testament. That's why he tends to preach from the Old Testament. But then the Sunday came when he preached from the New Testament, And he preached through the lens of the Old Testament, which he knew so well. And that was the day when I realized we need to also study the Old Testament to understand what's happening in the New Testament. Another reason we might want to study Hosea is because Hosea is mentioned in the New Testament in Romans 9, which we looked at Romans earlier uh, last year, And in Romans 9, uh, the argument is being made, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the objects of wrath that are made for destruction? And what if he has done so in order to make known the riches of his glory for the objects of his mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, including us, whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says, In Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called children of the living God. So this chapter in Hosea is rather long, especially compared to the rather short chapter that the special speaker is going to be talking about next week, whose name will go unknown, but his first initial is Carl. So <laughs> he got the short chapter, I got the long one. So we're going to do this in sections. So the first five verses say this. Say to your brother Ami and to your sister Ruhama, Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert. Turn her into a parched land and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and she has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who gave me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. And so right away we notice at the beginning of this chapter the names of the second and third child of Hosea and Gomer have been changed. They were originally named Lo-Ami and the lo Ruhama. The word Lo means not. And so now they're changed to just Ami and Ruhama, which we could also just say, read it this way, say to your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. And so God is changing their names, because not only is this a story of redemptive love, but it's also a story of adoption as we read also in Romans 8 which this passage this this uh, chapter is kind of mirrored here in Roman 8 it starts out very similarly doesn't it so then brothers and sisters we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh for if you live according to the flesh you will die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live for all who are led by the spirit of God are children of God For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So given this is a long passage, I'm just going to be able to, to highlight some things that, that jumped out to me on, on faith that the Lord wanted me to talk about certain things. The first thing that jumped out is these words, let her remove. And, and as I looked at that and looked at the strength of that language, it's like saying, tell her to knock it off, to stop it, cease, quit. Don't do that anymore. This is rather strong language that God is upset by what she's doing. And we'll see here that it's not just the promiscuity, but it's something else that's going on that's bothering God even more. And he says, she needs to stop it otherwise. Otherwise, something's going to happen. And so what is God otherwise going to do? He's going to do these things. And he says, I will strip her naked. I will make her as bare as the day she was born. I will make her like a desert. I will turn her. I will slay her with earth. He's going to do this personally. He's going to bring the consequences of her behavior into her life. He's going to make this happen. He's very serious about his concerns with what she's doing with her life. And notice he doesn't say, I might. I'm thinking about, there's a possibility, there's this remote chance. I will do this. So if you ever wonder what God's will is, here's a case where he's making it very clear. This is what I'm going to do in this situation. It occurred to me here that God is negotiating with gomer he 's always negotiating with us, what I do for a living is I teach, and where I teach mostly is in the area of negotiation. I teach a couple different courses on negotiation, and one of them is a five day course i teach it 's a competitive negotiation course, and during that course, I teach sixty five techniques of negotiation and usually when I say that people go, "Oh wow." There's more than the three that I know? Yeah, there's lots and lots of techniques of negotiation. And after I teach those 65 techniques, I point out that there's one technique that stands above all the rest as the most effective, the most efficient. And that technique is called quid pro quo. Or we might know it more simply as if then. If you do this for me, then I will do this for you. And the reason it's the most powerful is because it works differently than all the other techniques. Techniques work in a negotiation by creating tension. People don't like feeling tense, so they move off of their position in order to relieve themselves of their own tension. The most commonly used technique of negotiation is called disclaimer. Sometimes I, re- I refer to it as chest clutching. I've had a heart attack. So in other words, I'm, I'm selling my, my, uh, my bike, my 10-speed bike, and you're interested in buying it, and you say, how much you want for it, and I say $600, and you say, well, I'll give you $200. When you say 200, I will disclaim that number and have a heart attack. Like, 200, oh, you know. And so now the tension is on you because you are now a person who gives other people heart attacks. <laughs> you should be ashamed of yourself. And so getting rid of, to get rid of your tension, then the burden of movement is only on you. I'm not going to do anything other than repeat my, my 600. But if we do quid pro quo, when you say, well, I'll give you 200, I might come back with a quid pro quo and say, oh, I'll tell you what, if you pay me all cash... I can lower my price to 500. So now the burden of, of doing something is shared by both parties. It's a much more effective way to negotiate. It makes the negotiation cleaner, faster, and usually it preempts something called seller or buyer's remorse. How many have ever had that experience of buying something or selling something and about 10 minutes later you're like, oh, I probably could have done better. When people find out I teach negotiation, they like to tell me their story of some negotiation they did. Then afterwards they'll say, so you think I could have done better? And I always say, yeah. I always go, oh, man. And I say, wait a minute, you also could have done worse. So if you got a number and you got an agreement, then here's a little song I wrote. You want to learn it note for note. Don't worry. Be happy you got an agreement of some sort. But I'm I'm impressed with how God tends to, he's already known. I guess he knows more about negotiation than I do. He already uses quid pro quo. But if he were to ask me for my advice, and I also coach people in negotiation, I would coach him that he's not the world's best negotiator. And the reason for that is because he seems to put offers on the table that are always out of balance. So when God negotiates with us, he puts offers on the table that, in my opinion, are really unfair to him. For example, he says stuff like this. If I give you my son, then in return I would like you to give me your will. Really? Really? That's, you're going to give your firstborn only son. That's what you're giving. All you want from them is their will. That's it. Come here, Lord, I've got to talk to you about this. Okay. You could do so much better. He goes, okay, well, let me try this. If you give me your will, then I will give you eternal life. You will inherit my riches. You will have peace that passes understanding. Your life will be filled with joy. You will be given power, a sound mind, a confidence, beauty, wisdom. Hold I've got to talk to God here for a second. Listen. All you want is their will. You could get like a pyramid or something if you just push this thing. I mean, you're not asking for a whole lot. You're giving away everything. You're giving away the whole thing. And all you're going to get is their will that they would trust you? That's all you want? You're going to give it all away. And he would say, Bill, for them, I'll give it anything. They're precious to me. I can't afford to walk away from this negotiation. In fact, one of the things I teach people is whoever has the ability to walk away is in a stronger position. In terms of us and God, who tends to walk away more? We do. He doesn't walk away. He's actually made himself weak with respect to us. That's how desperately he wants to have us. So what happens is this deal, sounds too good to be true, at Harvard they call it reactive devaluation. It sounds so good, it can't be right, so therefore I reject it, I devalue it. And I think this is, as I think about this, it occurred to me just yesterday, this is sort of one of the reasons why many people refuse to participate, refuse to come to the Lord, don't want to hear about Christianity, for fear that the deal really sounds so good that I might take it, so I don't even want to hear the message, because this can't be right, something's missing here. All I do is this, and he does all that. Yeah, they want to go with another offer. Satan puts offers on the table as well, you know. He puts offers on the table that are unfair to us. He also uses what appears to be quid pro quo. I call it a pseudo quid pro quo, or sometimes we call it the carrot. You know how they get a donkey to move? Donkeys are stubborn, aren't we? They And to get the donkey to move, which is what negotiation is about, getting movement from the other party, they dangle a carrot in front of the donkey. The donkey sees it. Donkey's like carrots. So the the quid pro quo is if you will move forward and plow this field, you get this carrot. And the donkey being a donkey, does what? Moves forward. Okay. Okay. I'll do (laughs) it. What happens to the carrot? The carrot goes away. He never gets the carrot. You ever some, sometimes feel like in life you're just kind of trying to get something, you'll keep following and almost you got it and disappears that quickly. Sometimes we're donkeys as well. It's the false quid pro quo. But because the carrot is so enticing, we have reactive appreciation for that which has no value. This really sounds great. And so we put stuff on the table like money or nice clothes or a nice house. Or a prestigious job, like in the Oval Office. Or toys. I know it's family day. Or maybe even an Audi A6. I just bought an Audi A6 two weeks ago. Okay. It's eight years old because that's all I could afford. But, but the problem with those things is just like the carrot, eventually the money tends to run out. And eventually the clothes wear out. And the fashions go away. And the house is always breaking down. And so we have to keep repairing that. And eventually, we no longer have that great job that gives us prestige. Or in some cases, we have to retire from it. It's interesting to watch. People have very prestigious jobs and they retire. And what happens to their life? There's no meaning. It's all gone. Or our toys break. Or believe it or not, even an Audi A6 (laughs) will eventually break down. (laughs) And that's why Isaiah says to us, Why do you spend your time and money on things that don't permanently satisfy? Now, I wanted to bring up Isaiah because what I found out that you guys probably already knew, I shouldn't be up here teaching, Hosea and Isaiah were alive at the same time. Hosea is a minor prophet. Remember what Julie told us last week? Not because he was less significant or his prophecies prophecies were less important, he just didn't talk that much. So he has a a shorter book. Isaiah was prophesying down in the southern kingdom. Hosea was in the northern kingdom. And we'll see throughout this book and even in this chapter that they were saying pretty much the same things, which would sort of make sense, wouldn't it? One God, one spirit prophesying through two of his prophets, one in the northern kingdom, one in the south. So something else that jumps out here is this accusation God makes. I kind of hear it a little bit in tones sometimes like the kids arguing. But she said this, he said this, and God's saying, she said this. She said, I will go after my lovers who gave me my food and my water, my wool and my linen and my olive oil and my drink. That's what's bothering God, that she says this. Now, because it's family... uh, I won't say what she could have been saying, but you can imagine, I will go after my lovers because they give me something else. She doesn't say that. She's going after them because they're meeting her needs. That's what is bothering God. And so the next section goes, therefore, so here's the other part of the quid pro quo. If she says that, then this is what I'm going to do. I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better with me then than now. She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, who lavished upon her silver and gold that they use for Baal. Look, you can resist God all you want to. You have your will. Go ahead Give it a try. I'm sure all of us in this room from time to time have done that, right? Resisting God. But what have you learned like I have learned? He is going to win this thing. He is going to bring us about. So as my mother used to say, you can take telling or you can take feeling, but you're going to take one or the other. And in that message was simply this. It's going to be less painful for you if you take telling, So listening to God is better than going through the experience of being apart from him. This jumps out at me. God says, she didn't know that it was I who gave the grain. In other words, when she says, my my lovers give me this thing, God is saying, where do you think they got that from? They got that from me. I don't know if you're like me, but uh, I covet from time to time. You know, about every once, every three or four minutes, so i probably do that. And I see somebody with a nice house or, the, you know, flipping through the channels like Justin watching too much TV and there's this Lifestyles of the Rich and Ridiculous shows and all that. And you're like, look at that view off of their bathroom balcony, you know. <laughs> wow. But because I know the Lord, I know, and I know where they got that from. Of course, it's sort of advertised, look what they got, look what they earned. But in reality, it's going to be, eventually found out, you got your bathroom balcony view of the ocean from from God. And that's why it's sometimes harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven because they think, what? I got this on my own. It all comes from God. And what's really bothering him as well, it seems to bother God, is they use that very stuff that she gave, he gave them, to worship Baal. So let's take a quick look at Baal. He was a god considered to be the god of rain, earth, and agriculture. It's a god that the Hebrews picked up from those around them. This sort of makes sense because, you know, living back in that day, not with all that we have now, basically simple life, right? We need to eat and stuff that we eat comes out of the ground and for the stuff that comes out of the ground, you need to have rain. This is a very important issue here now would be sort of, I guess, like electricity. You ever notice when the electricity goes out, we just can't, we can't function whatsoever. And so this is very important, and it's a tangible, visible thing. And so they want to please Baal so that to make sure they get rain so the rain enters the earth, and the earth can give sustenance to the plants, and they can eat. And the point that God's making here with them is that this God Baal that you're worshiping is not the person who is causing things to rain. So you've, you've misappropriated credit. I'm the one who caused all this, I give you all this stuff, and you turn around and offer it to somebody who had nothing to do with what's going on here in terms of your survival. And so sometimes it can be helpful, I guess, to make sure we give credit where credit's due, to be thankful for the right reason. I tend to keep in touch and watch what's going on in the world of psychology and energy psychology and that concerns some people, but I'm, I'm also knowing this, if all things come from God. They are not discovering anything that God hasn't already figured out. Sometimes they'll point out stuff to me, this new thing that they're looking at now, how to really enjoy life. And one of the more recent movements is this uh, something they call thankfulness method, where if you be more thankful, your life becomes like, really, wow. how do you do that, you know? I never heard of that before. Oh, wait a minute, it's in, it's in the Bible. <laughs> There's one guy who kept telling me these different things, and I would say, yeah, that's in the Bible. At one point, he finally said, I guess I need to read the Bible yeah. again. Yeah, it might be a good idea. <laughs> There's nothing new under the sun, but God bless you. You're trying to help people, but you might be misappropriating credit to the wrong place. God already told us that it's important to be thankful. And the next section goes on. Therefore, this is what I'm going to do, because she has appropriated or misappropriated funds to the wrong place, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season and I will take away my wool and my flax which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her shame in the sight of her lovers or her providers and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. I will put an end to all her mirth, her festivals, her new moons, her Sabbaths and all her appointed festivals and I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees of which she said, these are my pay which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the wild animal shall devour them, and I will punish her for the festival days of the bales when she offered incense to them and decked herself with her ring and her jewelry and went after her lovers. So she's saying, I earned it. You can't have it. And God says, okay, if that's your position, then here's mine. I'm going to take back all that stuff that you think you earned. And we'll see who earned what and who's providing what around here. So at this point, if I'm going back to my negotiation course, God is using a style of negotiation we refer to as power player or hard style player. He's being assertive. He's being aggressive. He's getting in our face. But then he's going to make a shift. He's going to say, but before I do that, there's something else I can try. See, many people, when they negotiate, they only use basically one sort of approach because it was somewhat successful one time. Forget the other 57 times it wasn't successful. It was succeeded one time, so we keep trying to do the same thing over and over expecting different results, and it doesn't work. And God has lots of different ways to get to people. And so he says, but before I do that, therefore I will now allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Big shift here. From there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she shall respond as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. This part of this passage really touched me. He says, I'm going to try something different before I do that. That other stuff is still on the table, just so you know. But I'm going to offer something else for you. It's shifting to another approach. I'm going to allure her. Now that's a word I've read over many times, but this time in my preparation, that word went, what's this word allure mean? I know it's a magazine, but it means the power to entice or attract through personal charm. So what God's going to do is he's going to sweet talk her. Or we could also look at it the other way. The first section of this chapter is saying, I'm going to negotiate with you logically. To, to maybe sort of your left brain. But now this next section is, gonna, is saying, I'm going to try something else. I'm going to bypass your sense of logic and I'm going to talk directly to your heart. Because what we know now from the world of psychology is whatever's in the heart, the mind, the logic mind, will rationalize somehow. So when we change the heart, everything else follows suit. We weren't here this past Easter not because we were in protest of what's going to happen here, but we had to drive up to northern Michigan. Uh, Beth's dad, my wife Beth, he passed away January 5th up there in northern Michigan, and we couldn't have a burial right away because of the, oh, I don't know how many feet of snow they had, and the ground is frozen, you can't dig it up, so we had to wait. So it turned out, it worked out best, the day before Easter we had the burial, which was interesting because you know all that weather and that polar vortex we had, Well, right up to Saturday morning, bad weather. Then about an hour before the burial, the clouds part, the sun comes out. I mean, it was, you know, it was Hollywood-like. And then about an hour after the burial, the weather comes back in. So that one moment of time, we had a beautiful time to say goodbye a second time to her dad. And so being up there, then uh, Easter Sunday, we were invited by friends that we've met up there who are called the Otises to spend an evening in their home. The Otis's are uh, beautiful people we've met uh, some years ago. Actually, Cindy and Todd initially met them, and they have a pottery studio, and that's how Cindy met them, because if it says pottery studio anywhere, she's pulling in there and seeing what they have, okay? So she knows all those places, and, and met these people, and each time we go back and get to know them a little more, beautiful Christian people, and um, they're in their 70s, David and June Otis. You can go to the website, otispottery.com, and no, I'm not advertising, but they make some beautiful stuff. And so when we sat in their living room, which we'd never been in before, in their farmhouse, which was quite rustic but quite beautiful artistically, we got to hear their story. And uh, they met at Berkeley, uh, and they both got their master's degrees in art. So they're they're intelligent, educated people. After they got their master's degrees, and they were just friends, they uh, sort of began to lead a sort of a a bohemian lifestyle. And they they got a a, a studio, art studio, with uh, some other people there in California. And we'd travel from time to time. And they ended up, um, this is the two-hour story in two minutes. Uh, It was one of those evenings where we're just having wine and cheese. And the story went on. I I later noticed we've been sitting here two hours. It seemed like five minutes. It was such an interesting story about how how God took them into the wilderness and and allured them, wooed them. The, The Methodists call this prevenient grace, by the way. Well, I'm not in the Methodist Church anymore because they take that which is already complex and complexify it a bit more, so nobody <laughs> understands it. Okay. I was like, "Amen" from you, right, Scott? Yeah. <laughs> he remembers. That's why he's not there either anymore. But I love the Methodists. I love the Methodists. Okay. So, um, so they were telling their story, and uh, it ended up that that June uh, it was up in um, Germany. And David was down in Switzerland and she was teaching for the Department of Defense and he was sort of sort of trying to, you know, experience life and so on. And they both had an interest in God but weren't Christians. Uh, they both ended up getting into fellowship with, with Christian people. And um, on, on one of the various visits, sometimes he would hitchhike up to visit her for the day, still just friends, and sometimes she would drive her car down so we know who was making a bit more money. She would drive down to Switzerland to, to visit with him. And on one of the visits, he he, he, he says it like this. He says, so one of our visits over lunch, we're talking and we begin to talk about things of of God. And she began to talk about Jesus. But this time, she was talking about Jesus in a way that she'd never talked about him before. It was palpable. It was so different, so real, that I, I had to ask her. I said, June, have you become a Christian? And she was caught off guard and and flustered. She goes, oh, no, 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 I haven't become a Christian. But he says, because you're talking about Jesus like you've never talked about him before. And she said, I am? He goes, yeah, I just, he said, well, I don't know. And they talked some more. And she was driving home back to Germany that evening. And on the way home, uh, the Lord touched her. And she became aware in a moment that she did believe. She had to pull over to the side of the road and cry for a while out of tears of joy. In other words, God allured her. She became a Christian and didn't even know it. That's our God. That's how He can work. I'm sure some of you have had a similar experience. and Some of you probably had that sort of the, the big cool Christian story, right? Where you were in this terrible life and then God, you know, and then I know those. And I always sort of you know, envied those people. I don't have a story like, what's your testimony? I don't know. This guy got a good one out here, you know. They got cut off and reattached and the whole thing. And, you know, I, don't know, I don't have that. I had a hangnail is all I had. You know. She became a Christian and didn't even know it. God's sweet talks us. And then there's some of this imagery, some of this metaphor for us men is a little difficult, right, to hear this idea. So it helps to remind ourselves God is, is gender neutral. It's, As one tough guy said, I think of it this way, he's a big weightlifter tough guy, and he says, there's this wedding ceremony, Jesus is the groom, and he turns to his bride and lifts up the veil, and it's me. (laughs) I'm it. Why does he take her into the wilderness? The wilderness. The wilderness is used often in scripture either to denote a place or to denote a journey. Adam was created in the wilderness, taken into the Garden of Eden, and there Eve was created, and then they messed up and were kicked back out of the garden into the wilderness where they're going to have to meet their needs on their own, where it's very difficult to do so. The uh, Israelis, the nation of Israel, was taken out of Egypt, and they went into the wilderness. It's not a time of punishment. It's a time of process. Jesus himself, after his baptism, where did he go? He went into the wilderness. So the wilderness represents a, a place where our needs are not easily met, and so we learn to become dependent on God. So to be going into the wilderness is actually a gift to us, although initially it doesn't feel so great, does it? I'm sure everybody in here, since you've come to know the Lord, haven't you had your little wilderness moments (laughs) where all of a sudden, where's God at? He ain't going anywhere, but where you're at, (laughs) you're in the wilderness, but He's there with you. And that's why James tells us, consider it all, Joy when you encounter trials and tribulations. Why? Because it's for the perfecting of your faith. Now, that sounds all simple to do, but it's not so easy to go, Oh, great! My whole life is falling apart. Super! Yeah? (laughs) But that's what God wants us to do. That's all He asks for us to do. Just consider it all joy when you're in the wilderness. It's for your, your benefit, because when you come through it, you're a different person than you were before. And what is this valley of Acor? He says, from there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Acor a place of hope, a door of hope. Well, the Jews would have immediately recognized this reference. The valley of Acor is also a place of trouble. It's mentioned in Joshua after they conquered a city and they were told to destroy not only the inhabitants but all the possessions and some Israelis held on to those possessions and it was found out and they were accused and they were stoned to death in the valley of Acor. So it was used that way to reference a time of trouble. Kids probably used it when a brother noticed his other brother didn't do his chores. And he probably said, dude, you're going to be in deep, deep acor a the time of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Isaiah, remember Isaiah's same time, using the same exact reference, same God, same spirit. And God will make the Valley of Acor a place for herds to lie down. Herds never lie down in places where it's unsafe. They have to be able to do what? As soon as there's a predator. Take off and move. But he says God's going to make that which is a place of trouble and lack of safety, He's going to turn it around and make it exactly the opposite. This means something to me. It means something to us. I don't know what you're going through now or what you've been through or what you might go through. But the moment you realize this seemingly is a terrible thing, God's going to take that which seems to you to be a terrible thing a time of trouble and use that very thing... And turn it into a door of hope. Turn it into a time of safety, of benefit. We choose our perception of that, knowing who we know. And then it goes on. On that day, says the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. That's not my name. God's name is important. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. And they shall be mentioned by name no more. And I will make for you a covenant on that day with the wild animals, the birds of the air... And the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And you know, biblical scholars think this is referring to the ultimate end time, that little passage right there. And I will take you for my wife forever. I will take you for my wife in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will take you for my wife in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Whether you're great, you're small, you're rich, you're poor, you're smart, you're stupid. I will take you for my wife. So I stumbled upon this guy you may know of, Eric Metaxas. Heard of this guy? He's sort of a new Christian—well, not new—Christian apologist who, real smart guy, Greek guy, goes to Yale, does very well at Yale, becomes the publisher or the editor of their newspaper. And uh, the 99th game of, of Oxford and—I uh, mean—Harvard and Yale at the end of the game, he successfully led the effort to take uh, Harvard's goalposts and throw them into the Charles River. He's, uh, he became a New York Times number one bestseller. And uh, he's written for people like Charles Colson, And he's also written for Veggie Tales. Okay. And, and I just wanted to show you a short clip of what happened to him, similar to the story I told. But this is, this is a guy who is nobody's fool. And his, the way he came to know God, I think, is w- rather
0: interesting. So just take about two or three minutes. My uncle passed away. But I remember at the funeral, the priest asked me if I would read the Psalms. It was just kind of this thing. And I thought, yeah, yeah, I want to do that. Like something was engaged, basically, for the first time. And right around this time, I had a dream. It was right around my 25th birthday, so 25 years ago. I had a dream. And that dream changed everything. It was a life-changing, mind-blowing dream. In the dream... I'm standing on Lake Candlewood in Danbury, Connecticut. It's winter. I'm standing on the ice. I'm ice fishing with my buddy John and his dad. It's one of those glorious winter days where the sun is bright. The, uh, the sky is incredibly blue. Uh, there's white snow and ice. And we're standing there. And I look down into the hole where we uh, were fishing. And there's a fish. Sticking its snout out of the hole now. If you ice fish, you may know that that never happens. And I reach down and I pick it up and I and I hold it up. And in the dream, the light from the the the, the light from the sun was so bright, and it shone on the side of this this fish in a way that it made it look not bronze but actually golden, like it was made of gold. And then suddenly in the dream, I realize that, no, it's not looking gold. It's not just appearing to be gold. It's actually golden. I'm holding up a living golden fish. The way I look at the dream in retrospect is that God was speaking to me with what I call the secret vocabulary of my heart. This dream would have meant nothing to anyone else. It would have been just bizarre. In my 20s, after college, I finally came up with what I thought was a suitable answer to the meaning of the universe. I came up with this idea that, okay, it's kind of like a literary image. You have a frozen lake, and the ice on the lake represents the conscious mind. And the water beneath the ice represents the unconscious mind or the collective unconscious. And so that's Jung's idea of God, this kind of Eastern God force. And so the goal of life and of all religions is basically the same. Okay, it's to drill through the ice, the conscious mind, to reach the collective unconscious. This was this kind of idea that I had come up with. So when I had the dream, obviously, uh, it had some believable resonance. And so I'm, I'm holding this fish... And I realized, in the dream, like it's just like these paragraphs just drop into my head, boom, boom, like I know, God has just one-upped me with my own symbol system. I, in the dream, am aware, looking at this golden fish like it's out of a fairy tale that God has just said to me without a word, uh, Eric, you wanted to touch water, you wanted to touch inert water, uh this collective unconscious, this Eastern idea of this God force, but I have something else for you. I have my son, um, Jesus Christ, the son of God, your savior. This was huge. In fact, I remember specifically, and this has meaning here, that when we would see the, the fish on the back of the car, the chrome fish, which they started popping up in the 70s, my father got really excited about telling me that this is a Greek word, uh, that the Greek word for fish is ichthus, and that's an acronym, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior, and that's where the Christians came up with the fish symbol. So in the dream, I instantly knew all this came together and just blew my mind. You know, uh, it was transcendent. I went to work the next day and I told my friend at Tuttle, I said, I had this dream and you know, and he says, well, what do you think that means? And I said, well, it means uh, I've accepted Jesus. And I never, never would have said those words. I would have cringed to say those words. In fact, I would have cringed if anybody else said those words. I cringed when people said stuff like that. I just thought, oh. but I mean, what can I tell you? I mean, it was absolutely Mind-blowing. So as we
1: wrap up the last few verses here, on that day, I will answer, says the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow him for myself in the land, and I will have pity on lo Ruhama, And I will say to Lo-Ami, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my are my God. As I read through this passage, I kept stumbling on those two verses and kept putting them aside. Like, I just won't unpack those verses when I'm speaking because I'm not really sure what they're saying here. <laughs> it was confusing answering this and answering that. And, and as I, I decided to go ahead and learn something and challenge myself, and, and I, I, I saw that if you worked it backwards, it would make sense. Jezreel, he wants food, he wants grain, he wants wine and oil. So he asks of the, the, the grapes and he s of the vineyards and the s of the olive trees. He asked for these things. And so they say, well, Jezreel wants that. So they ask of the earth, I need sustenance. I need the minerals that you have in order to grow. And the earth says, well, I need water. So the earth calls to the heavens and says, I need water. And the heavens say, I need water. And God says, what? I will answer that. I am the one who's going to provide. I am doing what you think Baal is doing. I'm running the show here. So... If I were to summarize it this way for you, in my words, putting kind of words actually in God's mouth, I sort of hear Him saying this to us. The day is coming when you and I will be together forever. To use an analogy you might understand, I will take you, much like a man takes a woman to be his wife and pledges to provide for her with all of his strength and resources, but even more so I will do because I will make you whole, I will heal you, and I will make you holy, and you will know me, the Lord, as I am, not Baal, and you will know love. God is saying to us, I am not giving up on you.